When bad things happen, such as catastrophic hurricanes, mass violence, or disease outbreaks, it's tempting to view the healthcare system's emergency response through the lens of heroic actions and dedicated individuals. After all, emergencies by their nature are unpredictable, and it's human beings who must often make decisions and improvise on the spot in order to save lives and lessen harm and injury. That's a good thing. At the same time, in the aftermath of many major crises or disasters, what we often discover is that a lot of what went well can be tracked back to careful planning, training, and the anticipation of even the most extraordinary and unimaginable events. Not only that, when emergency preparedness draws upon a daily emphasis in healthcare on teamwork, communication, working across silos, attention to safety, reliability, culture, you know, all that good stuff of quality improvement, the response is all the more effective and powerful. Hurricane Sandy and how the North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System steered its patients and staff safely through harrowing conditions last fall is a case in point, and that's our focus on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As many of you know, we come to you bi-weekly, and we also offer you for your convenience later listening via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. We all learn a lot about what's working and what isn't during a crisis and in the immediate aftermath, but it's useful to reflect on the continuing relevance of these experiences, like Hurricane Sandy, months later. And so we're fortunate to have three key leaders and informants from North Shore LIJ for today's WIHI to take us back in time and forward. So we all learn a lot about what's working and what isn't during a crisis, and uh, that's why we're thrilled to uh, have our guests with us today to kind of uh, reflect back in time with us. Um, I also want to remind people that if you like to tweet, uh, you can uh, do so during this program or immediately after. If you can, please include the hashtag IHI. We, uh, IHI's Twitter handle is at the IHI, and if you include that, then others uh, can be involved in the discussion as well. So let me now introduce our guests and a reminder that they've got longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accomplishments that are on our WIHI webpages as well as on their own organization's website. So first off, let me introduce Mark Salazzo. He's Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at North Shore LIJ Health System. He oversees all of its operations, including 16 hospitals, long-term care facilities, medical research institute, and healthcare-related businesses. Prior to his appointment to Chief Operating Officer in 2005, Mark managed the health system's emergency preparedness efforts and special projects for the Center for Emergency Medical Services and other core divisions. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Matt. All right, great. We've got Joseph Cabral, uh, and by the way, anybody want to correct any pronunciation of mine, please do so, or Joe Cabral. He's the Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer for the North Shore LIJ Health System. The organization has a workforce comprised of more than 46,000 employees, and that does figure in the story we're about to hear. Joe Cabral has more than 19 years of experience developing and executing strategies that enhance cultural and organizational change. Welcome, Joe Cabral. 
Thank you. All right. And Dr. Mark Jarrett is with us as well. He's the Vice President and Chief Quality Officer for North Shore LIJ. Dr. Jarrett is responsible for system-wide initiatives in quality and safety. He's also a professor of medicine at Hofstra North Shore LIJ School of Medicine. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. All right. So we have two Marks, and you'll get to know their voices uh, and distinguishing uh, characteristics very shortly. Um, I want to tell you that these three uh, gentlemen are all gathered around a table in the same conference room around the same phone. And if we have to, we'll just make little adjustments along the way to make sure you can hear everyone clearly. Um, I also want to say when you plan a program with leaders like we have today and very seasoned planners themselves, it's hard to pull rank as the show's producer. So while Mark, Mark, and Joe uh, spoke with me and John in advance, they also got together on their own to map out their remarks, which is just wonderful. And so using the frame of operations, quality, and human resources, which is sort of in each of their wheelhouses, they're going to walk us through, I would say, uh, kind of these sort of three big chunks the health system's initial preparedness for Hurricane Sandy, the actions that were taken during the storm based on planning and what sorts of new challenges were faced and responded to, and thirdly, the ways in which the response to Hurricane Sandy uh, have now added to the system's ability to respond effectively to emergencies, especially given the system's commitment to continuous learning from each experience long after the fact. So uh, I hope I uh, framed that pretty correctly, uh, gentlemen, and let's start off with Mark Salazzo for an overview of the system and sort of take us back uh, to that that time in October, the end of October 2012. Welcome, Mark Salazzo. Thank you, Madge, and uh, welcome to all the listeners. Uh, what I'll do is I'll just do a very, very brief overview of the healthcare system and uh, also lay out a little bit of the geography of our healthcare system because I think it's important to the discussion. First, we're a very integrated healthcare system. We began our journey back in 1990 and have had uh, significant growth over the years. We are now a $7 billion healthcare system with over 16 hospitals and more than 6,000 acute care beds. We have the full continuum of care, nursing homes, home care, um, transportation system. Many of those items play significantly into uh, an event such as this when you have a large number of home care patients um, in addition to acute care patients. We also have nearly 400 ambulatory sites across this healthcare system, many of which were near the water. And uh, these, that's also important given the decentralized uh, focus across this healthcare system. We serve 7 million pay, uh, people in this uh, New York metropolitan area. We have over 4 million patient contacts a year. And we have, as Madge pointed out earlier, more than 46,000 employees, which uh, Joe Cabral will talk to uh, as we go along here and how important and integral they were uh, involved in both the pre-planning and the uh, event. We are a single system. Um, we have single system-wide governance and management over all of these uh, uh, assets, and that's also important because we act as one, uh, especially during emergencies. We, we, we use our resources and pull them together. Now, geography is important, and from the slide that you see, you see the New York metropolitan area. And the New Jersey coastline, uh, and Long Island uh, South Shore form a right angle to the Atlantic Ocean. And that's also important with regard to how Hurricane Sandy approached us. 
there's significant risk in a hurricane. The worst case scenario for uh, our hurricane planning was that a hurricane would come in from the east and go into southern Jersey, leaving our vulnerable hospitals along the south shore of Long Island and, and Staten Island in the highest uh, risk quadrant of the hurricane for surge. And in, uh, and in fact, that is exactly what Hurricane Sandy did to us. Three of our hospitals are most vulnerable. Two on Staten Island, Staten Island University Hospital North and Staten Island University Hospital South, and Southside Hospital uh, out east along the south shore of Long Island. They are in a flood zone, slosh zone, and are vulnerable to flooding. Now, with the geography and just a little bit over the, with the overview of the health system, I would like to talk about a little bit of our emergency preparedness efforts because we didn't start planning for a hurricane two weeks before. We actually began our efforts way back in 1997. And we started uh, with uh, the basics. Each of our facilities and our hospitals had the hospital emergency instant command structure put in place. But then what we did is we took it one step forward by combining those resources into what we termed a NICS, or Network Emergency Incident Command System. And we operate from a central command center, and from that central command center, we're able to understand what resources we have across the health system and to be able to provide and move those resources as one. And that's important because when size matters in disasters, and if you're able to provide a lot of resources to a disaster or to an incident in one location, you mitigate the incident fairly rapidly. Um, when you have a hurricane hitting a whole region, however, um, the, the equation changes a little bit. Now, over the period of time since 97, we have built up our capability with regard to emergency preparedness. Uh, we have recruited very talented staff, former FBI, New York City SWAT, Fire Department, federal DMAT leaders. These people have the capacity, the competencies to be able to handle any type of emergency, and that's the way we prepare. We also had a commitment by senior leadership to make certain that the resources were available for the equipment, for, to train the staff, and to conduct drills on a frequent basis so that we were prepared and that the staff were comfortable in being able to respond to different kinds of emergencies. And we take this very seriously. We believe we are a community asset and that we are here as leaders to protect that asset for the community. And we've tested, as I said, many times through different types of drills. Mark, I'm just going to make a very quick comment, uh, which is, um, first of all, again, if anybody's not uh, logged into the computer, you can uh, get access to these slides by emailing info at IHI.org right now. Um, and uh, one of the things that's striking to me about all the events that, say, from the late 90s uh, right into Hurricane Sandy is the, uh, the variety. I hope that doesn't sound weird. But we've got anthrax in here. Uh, we've got fair. Uh, crash, uh, H1N1. Um, some people might think these are all uh, so different uh, that they're, that you might send people off in very, very different kinds of directions for planning, but that doesn't sound like that's the case. It, it isn't, Madge. Um, we have a, a little bit of a saying that uh, you can't plan for everything, so we have to be prepared for anything. 
Um, and so uh, the, the basic structure is consistent with regard to how we respond. We obviously drill different types of components, and, and Mark Chatter can speak to that in a few seconds. Um, but uh, what we try to do is uh, take an all-hazards approach. And so that the staff, um, we try to test the staff in different kinds of scenarios. And many times when we will do tabletop or even full drills, they won't know exactly where we're going with the type of uh, drill. Huh. And so it's important for the staff to be able to think on their feet, evaluate a situation, gather as much information as possible. However, in an emergency, you never, ever have enough information, and then make a decision. Okay. And it's important to make a decision, and we drill that, because not making a decision is a decision. And so, Mark, do you want to jump in on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, uh, all of the hospitals participate individually uh, with drills as well as on a system level. And the most important thing is for everybody to be very comfortable using the incident command system uh, because that really defines things not by the people but by the roles. And therefore, uh, anybody who has the skill sets can jump in right away uh, and there is paper to help guide them uh, because events can happen in the middle of the night, they can happen on a holiday, uh, they can happen on a Sunday, and the usual senior leadership may not always be there for the first six or 12 hours, and therefore it may take time for everybody to mobilize, and you really need the staff to be able to take care of things, and that has been one of the main things that we've been drilling uh, all along. Mm -hmm. It's an important point. Thank you very much. Okay, so you want to now kind of, uh, it's a beautiful, uh, almost summer-like day here in the Boston area, but let's go back <laughs> to October of 2012, uh, at least for some of us in the country, uh, a very fierce storm was bearing down uh, on the East Coast. Yes, it was, and, and maybe we can go to the timeline a little bit, okay. and uh, we'll talk little bit about what uh, what we did those uh, in preparation for the storm and then uh, we'll, we'll try to do this from an operations quality and HR perspective okay uh, pre during and post thanks um, first uh, on Monday October 22nd um, we activated our uh, system emergency operations center uh, we were watching the storm come up the coast and uh, we started preparations at that point and preparations um, before the storm uh, consisted of quite a number of activities. Uh, first, with regard to um, uh, facilities, we started to um, prepare the facilities. Any construction was stopped. Uh, things were starting to be tightened up. We started to sandbag critical areas of the low-lying facilities. We uh, pre-positioned additional uh, generators and uh, pumper trucks, actually, to make certain that uh, vulnerable areas, if, uh, if uh, storm surge or flooding um, penetrated the um, vulnerable areas, such as switchgear or generators, um, beyond the barriers that we, we put in place, that we would be able to uh, try to keep them from uh, going down by using uh, uh, pump or trucks. We pre-positioned supplies. Uh, we pre-ordered additional foods and uh, drugs and supplies and pre-positioned them. 
and we started to inform our staff, which I think is a critical component in making certain that they were ready. And Joe, do you want to talk a little bit about those activities? Right. You know, it's uh, interesting when Mark uh, mentions that we actually had to uh, make absolutely certain that we had enough supplies. You need to appreciate that we're actually, uh, most of our facilities are in Manhattan, an island, uh, Long Island, another island, and Staten Island, which is yet another island, which means that to get to any of our destinations, you have to go over bridges and or tunnels. And so the idea, we've uh, certainly experienced even in a really bad snowstorm where um, trucks uh, or high winds uh, were banned from bridges. So the idea that uh, the, that we have to absolutely be prepared by um, having those supplies. And when I talk about supplies, everything from food, water, anything you can think of, we, we, we had to absolutely make certain we had enough of it uh, and enough that we could not only use for ourselves, but we also had a little bit of history of having to share with uh, some of our uh, uh, competitors, if you will. So um, having said that, I think the other big planning was around uh, workforce planning. Did we have enough? Uh, how do we prepare? How do we staff? How do we make sure we have enough uh, employees or, or workers uh, that can support uh, this type of uh, potential disaster? And one of the mandates had been that uh, the, um, the facilities, each of our facilities had to be at 150% staffing. So that starts with a lot of... Uh, what types of staffing, um, um, what's the potential um, the patients that we're going to be seeing in the EDs will determine what, uh, what specialists, for example, are we going to need extra um, hands in the emergency room. Well, they don't all need to be nurses. We can use them as transporters. Uh, so we really uh, have done this several times where we really have a pretty comprehensive plan around how to ramp up during these emergencies. One of the other things that we did, too, um, uh, prior to uh, rapid discharge was we kept we're keeping our staff informed. We were sending out notices, uh, and communication is essential during this, uh, this period of time, so we were sending out notices to our staff and to our physicians several times a day, keeping them informed of the progress of the system as well as where the hurricane was and what we were expecting. Because one of the things that we really concentrated on was uh, making certain that our staff had, was ready for, and that they had a safe plan for themselves and their families. Because if they didn't feel that their families were safe, then we were concerned that they wouldn't be able to come and help provide patient care on site. And so we spent a lot of time communicating and getting our staff ready. We actually had um, many screensavers even before uh, hurricane season started about ready, set, go bags, what they needed to do to prepare uh, for themselves and for their family and to have evacuation routes and, and places where their family could go if the storm was going to be a bad one. Had you had those before, uh, ready, set, go bags? Had you done that before? Yes, we did that actually uh, prior to Hurricane Irene, which was one year prior to right. Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. Um, and so we had started to um, a Ready, Set, Go campaign with our staff to tell them what are the essential things that they need in a, in a go bag um, and that, uh, some very important pre-planning, you know, medications. Um, uh, make certain that you go to the ATM and get money out because you don't know if the, an ATM is going to be up afterwards. Um, where, where should you go in case the, you're forced to evacuate? To make certain that your 
family is safe so that way you can come in and take care of your patients. And obviously to be able to uh, equip these uh, go bags, what we uh, decided to do during our employee appreciation um, events was one year we actually handed out flashlights uh, so that they could go in their personalized to-go bag. So that's yet another sort of uh, way for us to just always be thinking about what it is that we need to do to be prepared. Okay. Um, Go ahead. And I just want to make sure, just I'm I'm watching the clock. These, uh, I want to tell everybody that our our guests today are are (laughs) packing in a a very uh, dramatic and, you know, a series of events uh, stretched out over a period of time, and they're trying to kind of compact it into our show today, and I I am grateful to them. I want to make sure that we uh, get in here and uh, don't want to break your flow, but maybe, Dr. Jarrett, you can talk a little bit or whomever was going to talk a little bit about some of these patient decisions. Uh, uh, that's that exactly what I was about to talk about. Terrific. Okay. Okay. So, as was mentioned, the, you know, the emergency operations center was opened a week before the storm. Uh, three and a half days before the storm, it was decided by senior leadership uh, that for the two sites on Staten Island and Southside Hospital, there would be a partial evacuation of the hospital. Now, this was in uh, contrast to Hurricane Irene, uh, where the New York City had ordered both hospitals in Staten Island completely evacuated, and it had been decided by the system to evacuate Southside as well. Uh, this storm, that order did not come through, and as you all know, predicting where a hurricane's going to hit and how bad it's going to be is very difficult. Uh, however, we felt, uh, you know, it was felt by senior leadership that the patients that were at highest risk were those on ventilators, babies in the NICU. Uh, those are patients that you don't want to have in a hospital in case power, generators, everything goes out. Uh, the lessons learned in uh, Katrina down in New Orleans are, were very evident to all of us. So it was decided to partially evacuate the hospitals uh, and have those patients sent uh, to other hospitals in the system. Now that can only occur with simultaneously the other hospitals undergoing what we call rapid discharge. And that's to move patients out who can either go to home uh, with extra home care, uh, who have a safe place to go because, again, they may live in the South Shore areas where it's very dangerous and which may get evacuated uh, anyway, or to go to nursing home facilities uh, because they need some more skills uh, than just being able to go home in order to continue the care. Uh, so patients were that partially evacuated. Those patients were evacuated so that we were not left with patients in the hospital who, so to speak, were electricity dependent for survival. Uh, in addition, uh, we use patient relations throughout the, throughout the uh, hospitals to communicate with the families because obviously this is very traumatic. Patients are being sent home, patients are being transferred to nursing homes, or patients are being transferred to another facility. In addition, we had to reassure the patients that were staying, that were too sick to go to be, have a rapid discharge, why they should stay, why it was safe to stay there. Uh, the patients that were sent home were given medications in case the pharmacies were closed. Uh, and uh, we followed up those patients just so, so everybody understands from a quality viewpoint uh, several days later uh, just to make sure that after the storm uh, that there were no untoward effects. Uh, we did track our readmissions of these patients to make sure that anybody who was sent home on a rapid discharge or to a nursing home uh, did not have an untoward effect. 
Uh, Again, Mark, let so me just... that's how we've got into the quality area. Yeah, let me just ask you, um, given uh, that we have the advantage of kind of what real events and decisions and then some time afterward, how do you think people overall, I don't know what kind of uh, data uh, you've tracked, but how do you think people overall fared uh, who were discharged in that uh, concentrated uh, three-day period? We, found, we did not find any major quality issues. Great. We did not have any serious morbidity nor mortalities due to the rapid discharges or due to the transfers. Uh, the advantage of doing the transfers several days in advance was they were done when the weather was good. Uh, we had time to plan time for communication, doctor-to-doctor communication, so the patients that were transferred to another hospital, the receiving uh, team understood and the receiving nurses understood exactly what what the patients had that were coming and a time to transfer information. Uh, Interesting, one thing we learned is on Hurricane Irene, uh, we transferred medications to the other hospitals. Uh, We discovered that since we were transferring in-house, you know, within the system, and also the fact that we had pre-positioned extra meds at all the hospitals, uh, that actually became more of a nuisance to track the medications that were transferred and actually didn't turn out to be a thing we should continue to do. So we didn't do it on, on, on with this event. Okay. Uh, just to point that... Just to point out one other thing is that you send people places, but after the storm, you have to get them back. Right. Uh, and I'll just point out that we do do repatriation of patients, uh, but the repatriation was based on a priority scale. Uh, if patients were transferred to another institution and now their clinical condition indicated they needed a higher level, such as a tertiary care institution, uh, then they were transferred back. If people were about to be discharged in the next three, four days, we kept them where they were unless the patient or the family really insisted they come back to their uh, originating uh, hospital uh, and at a convenience for the families, then we arranged that. But as I said, we re-followed up all the patients that were discharged. Terrific. Thank you. All right. So I see part of uh, we're showing now uh, some way in which uh, implicit in all this, of course, is a relationship to the community and some other hospitals. And uh, who who wants to talk about that? Is that uh, Mark Salazzo? You want to start? there, and then maybe we'll come uh, circle back again to employees. Sure. Uh, let me start there. So, you know, Mark, uh, Jared had just laid out our approach to evacuation and to rapid discharge, and it was all carried out with the knowledge that it had to be done before the storm started and, and winds got over 45 miles an hour, because then it's not safe to transport uh, patients in uh, high-profile ambulances. Uh, the issue, and we did that very, very well. The issue came uh, like several hours before the winds really started to pick up as we were getting calls from a lot of other facilities that uh, were not quite as well prepared or pre-planned uh, their activities as uh, as we were fortunate enough to do. And we had to respond to uh, a vast, a large number of nursing, home, uh, um, uh, nursing homes across our area that were seeking uh, assistance from us and getting their patients out of harm's way. And uh, we also transported quite a number of other um, patients from uh, Long Beach Hospital as well. And those uh, patients we were doing right as the storm was uh, actually starting to pick up speed and, uh, and it was starting to put some risk to our, uh, to our transport teams and to the patients that we were, we were assisting. Uh, I think one of the lessons learned um, is that while we do plan for our own health system, 
Um, it's really important to reach out to other providers in your area um, and to make certain that um, there's good communication, good channels of communication. Uh, encourage them to work together early um, and so it's not in a late hour where you're putting patients at risk um, and trying to move resources around uh, in a dangerous type of situation. Another thing that um, we have to truly understand is that when things go bad, people seek out hospitals for shelter. Right. Um, they don't need to be hurt. Um, we, we received a lot of worried well that uh, didn't know where to go, showing up on our doorsteps, um, especially in the partially evacuated hospitals that we had. Um, and um, we, you needed to be prepared to, to handle and deal with those patients and provide them shelter during the storm. Uh, we also had patients who were on dialysis, patients were, who were um, oxygen dependent, showing up because they were afraid that power is going to go out and how would they uh, be able to be taken care of. And so that surge of patients occurred uh, before the storm star started um, and then during the end of the storm as well. Um, all of our facilities were operational during the storm. So even the ones that we partially evacuated, every facility had their emergency department open, and there were teams in the emergency department and medical teams that uh, Dr. Jarrett had pre-positioned there to make certain that we could handle any type of emergency that came in because you were not going to be able to transfer a patient. Right. Do you and want to comment on that, Mark? Yes. It was very important that the that we also, just as we had staffing at 150% for the right general staff, uh, for the clinical staff, especially for physicians and specialties, we had them pre-positioned in the hospital to spend the night in the hospital the night of the storm, knowing that if there was an emergency, we couldn't depend on the neurosurgeon being able to drive with downed trees or, or floods. Uh, so we actually made a list of uh, personnel and asked a representative from each of those sections and departments, including psychiatry, because it was a big behavioral health component of people being under stress, both staff as well as obviously the community, uh, and asked them all to stay in the hospital so we can, we can handle any emergency that came in. Uh, because again, in this type of situation, people sometimes do silly things and go outside and get hurt. Okay. okay. Uh, I would like also to point out one other thing that we had to do, and that, as you know, NYU had to evacuate completely. Right. Uh, Lenox Hill Hospital in uh, uh, in Manhattan absorbed over 90 of their patients in a matter of about two, three hours. Uh, and then came a whole issue following this of NYU being closed and then their physicians needing to a place to bring their patients after the storm. And there was a whole uh, program set up for emergency credentialing of their physicians for a for both the short-term and the long-term, as well as quality monitoring for now basically a whole other medical staff joining an existing medical staff. Uh, and it was kind of a unique thing that's really never happened in New York City before. I know it's happened in other parts of the country where hospitals are knocked out by tornadoes like in Joplin, uh, but this was very unique in a major metropolitan center uh, and presented its own issues, but uh, uh, there were some lessons learned from that as well. All right. Well, maybe we can come back to, to some of those. Thanks. Yep. 
Madge, if you can go to some of the images of the storm, because yeah, I think that really, really brings us now to the impact of the storm on our area. And one of the things that was significant here is the, dense, the population density in which uh, this storm hit. Um, I, I know from our, uh, our colleagues down in the New Orleans area, uh, many, we, we spent some time with them after Katrina to understand uh, some of the issues that they faced, and they certainly were devastated by that storm. I think the one difference between us and them, while their intensity of the storm was probably uh, much more ma uh, significant than here, our problem was the density of the population hit. And I think you're showing some of the si slides of Rockaway, Queens, for example. This is an urban area, um, and it was completely devastated during the storm. And the issue is that our employees live in this area. Um, many of our employees live in Queens, along the south shore of Long Island, and in Staten Island. And so they were personally affected by the storm. Their houses were wiped out, and yet they, they came to work. And we, we truly respect and, and honor our staff for uh, their efforts during this storm because they were the ones who really were the heroes of this, uh, of this event. And we were there just to really assist them. And in trying to assist them, uh, Joe, I think we'll talk about everything we tried to do to help them get through this um, and, uh, and let them care for our patients. Thanks. Thank so, you. So, you know, I think one of the, one of the, one of the um, uh, as you can see in, in some of the pictures, it was really, in some neighborhoods, total devastation, right? So there's this uh, particular neighborhood uh, called Breezy Point where I think there was uh, 111 homes that burnt down to the ground. Uh, one of the nurse managers was actually watching the news as uh, – they were showing some images of the uh, neighborhood burning, burning to the ground, and that was actually where she was from and where she lived. And mm. literally minutes later, she got a call from her husband saying, honey, don't bother coming home. There's no home to come to. Oh, boy. Uh, those are the kinds of things that we were dealing with on a regular basis. Those are the feedback we were getting. Uh, it was just uh, incredible. Um, one of the things that uh, we learned from our emergency preparedness center um, sort of the command center was, in fact, that we should build something similar for our workforce. Um, so as we started to think about um, how, to how to build it, we actually built a command center for our employee resource center. We, we, we dubbed it the Employee uh, Emergency Resource Center, but in fact it was for any employee or any staff that knew of an employee that needed any type of assistance, and we actually ended up building that out. Now, it would have been bad enough to deal with Hurricane Sandy, uh, but then um, as a result of that, of course, we had uh, sort of this power outage, and the power was out not for a couple of days, uh, uh, weeks. We were there as far as uh, four weeks without power in some of the neighborhoods, and I'm sure that also made some, some national news when we uh, our, our um, utility company came under fire for not responding fast enough. Uh, adding uh, injury, uh, adding insult to injury, uh, we then had to go through a gas shortage. So our workforce struggled to, I'd like to come to work, but I have no gas. Uh, there's really no uh, 
and that also played out in the news in, in a way that uh, we had never seen before. Most of our um, sort of gas stations don't have backup generators. In the lines, literally, you would wait four hours, you get up there, and um, there was really nothing else we could do. And then, of course, after that, uh, you think, oh, at least we're going to get a little bit of a break. Uh, I guess that didn't happen because on November 8th, uh, we had a nor'easter uh, that uh, came in and uh, dumped some snow on top of uh, um, the devastation that you've seen. So uh, the need for this resource center really came in um, uh, came in very handy. And, and what I mean by that is uh, we built it uh, virtually overnight. Uh, we... Um, uh, actually used our, our existing infrastructure. We actually have a call center that normally handles about 120,000 calls a year for our employees. It's an employee service center. We used that existing number, and then we created a sort of, uh, um, which was fairly easy to do when you think about it, and then we just actually added some additional lines. Uh, as you can see, we actually managed uh, uh, over four, uh, close to 5,000 calls from our employees while the call center was open. Some of the types of assistance that we needed to provide was housing. We actually had gotten a call from an employee who was homeless, didn't have a home to go to, and was actually on the street with his mother and had to go pick up his kid at his aunt's but didn't have a place to go or stay. Those are the types of calls. So we partnered with our security uh, department to go pick this family up and bring them to a shelter. Now, shelters didn't exist, so what did we do as an organization? We had some closed units in some of our facilities where we brought in our employees and some of their family members, and that's how we started sort of some of these temporary shelters to accommodate some of our workforce. Uh, we then said, we then realized um, that the um, temporary housing uh, was going to be more than a couple of days. We then partnered with our real estate arm and uh, found some real estate rentals that we subsidized to move some of these families into because of the devastation and knowing that these employees would not get back into their um, homes for quite some time. We also provided some financial assistance. Um, now you're saying, well, that's all great and it must cost money. We actually had a gala that took place a week after the storm. And we, as, a, as a, an executive team, struggled with, do we keep, do we, um, Keep the gala, meaning do we do we postpone it or do we ask folks to still come? And what we did was any of the proceeds, I think uh, uh, two million or three million dollars of the of money that we raised for that gala went to support our employees. So uh, we decided to keep it. We toned it down, and any money we raised for that particular gala went right back to support our employees and their families. We also provided transportation. We asked our employees to donate. Uh, they donated more than 7,000 vacation hours, so if we had employees that needed time. Uh, we also, there were um, organizations that were uh, willing to partner with us legal um, to provide some legal support, which we were able to do. This is for um, you know, how do I collect uh, on my health, on my house insurance? I don't have any money. How do I navigate FEMA? So we had some legal support that actually provided that. I think one of the most um, touching things that we saw was uh, very locally at the hospitals, we had an employee who had the idea of creating a company store, which wasn't necessarily, we were very cautious. We didn't want 
our employees or the or our the communities to just sort of uh, empty out their closets. We put a list of items that were needed, and we asked our existing employee uh, workforce to bring them into work, and then the employees in need could go in and shop like they would in a grocery store, and they could take the items that they needed, of course, free of charge. And so that we they started that locally, and then it spread like wildfire. All of our facilities then replicated those company stores. The other thing that we realized was that even the employees that were coming into work um, and were going back home, some of them actually didn't have heat, uh, uh, weren't able necessarily to, or electricity. So we actually prepared meals for them, to uh, almost to-go meals uh, for them and a family of four, where in some cases they could pick it up in the cafeteria before they left their shift. Uh, so they wouldn't, didn't necessarily have to worry about cooking their meals. I'm going to uh, jump in. Uh, I'm going to jump in really quickly here, and that's kind of the uh, the old host role here. This is just I we've we've been uh, flashing the slides here, and we do see all these categories. It's so comprehensive, and I hope our audience uh, will forgive me for uh, butting in for just a moment because I do want to make sure that people are able to ask all of you who are sharing such valuable information uh, some questions. We uh, have gone over our usual uh, half hour. Uh, time, um, you know, for remarks and then opening up to Q&A, and I hope everyone can understand that. And what I think I'll do here, if you're willing, uh, gentlemen, is um, can we just hold it right here for now? You've got quite a bit up here. I think um, we, I know you have some sort of after action and continuous learning points to make. Let me see if we can get some questions and comments in here first, and then we'll make sure uh, to get sort of uh, your kind of after action assessment and going forward stuff in here before we close out today. I do want to say that I'm really struck by the complexity of not only what had to go on with the patient population, but with the employees as well. And I imagine in many other communities and healthcare systems and others, people have also had to deal with these many dimensions. So perhaps we'll get some questions about that as well. But I can't imagine there hasn't been tremendous learning about um, just what employees themselves may need uh, who are in the midst of, of harm's way as well as trying to take care of all the patients in your care. So is that okay with you if we open it up to Q&A and then we'll, uh, we'll circle back with your final points? Of course. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. So, John, just a very quick reminder. It looks like some people are already chatting, but uh, maybe just a quick reminder. Yeah, we've gotten some great questions so far, but uh, if you want, just make sure that uh, you address your questions to all participants in the send to area of the chat, and we'll uh, look forward to seeing them. All right. So, somebody is asking uh, whether um, about the relationship between the hospitals and long-term care facilities. Are nursing homes on the prior? Excuse me. Prior power restoration list like major um, hospitals. Uh, they're wondering if anyone of you can speak to that. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, we're not certain, to be perfectly honest okay. with you. You know, even hospitals in the area here have been, they're on the list, but sometimes uh, that meant uh, 48 hours. Um, and uh, it meant uh, a lot of pre-work because um, uh, some of our hospitals are very vulnerable to power outages given the uh, infrastructure that we have on Long Island is pretty dated. And uh, it's taken a lot of work to, to establish very 
good relationships with our local power company to make certain that they, they do respond effectively. And during this storm, uh, all the work that we did after um, Irene, they were, they were exceptional with regard to responding to our hospitals. But um, I'm, I, we're looking at each other and we're just not certain. I think it's a, a case-by-case basis to make certain the nursing home and the local power company have established that relationship. Okay. I, I would just add, I would just add that to give you a perspective of the magnitude, Lower Manhattan from 42nd Street down had no power for over five days. Uh, and there were sections that went further than that. So if you think about, you know, if the, the center of the financial world doesn't have power, uh, then uh, the nursing homes are going to be a little further down the line. So it really was such a major disaster that uh, really that it didn't matter really the pecking order because so much reconstruction had to occur. Okay. Question for you, Mark Jarrett. Maybe I'll keep you here or anyone who needs to answer or can answer this. How did the hospitals manage dialysis patients who showed up in the ED? How did you locate uh, dialysis facilities to determine uh, if they were open? Uh, there are two things. One, locating the dialysis. Uh, there's an organization called IPRO uh, that kind of organizes the dialysis network, and they let us know whenever they could, where, whenever there were uh, satellite sites that were open that we can direct patients to. In reality, most of them were knocked out because they either didn't have generators or we couldn't even communicate them because all phone lines were down. Uh, even the copper lines were down. So, Basically, the hospitals geared up and started doing dialysis 24-7. Uh, and patients came in. We let people know that they can bring there. On Staten Island, for example, all three satellite dialysis units were knocked out because of the power issues, and all the patients were handled by the hospital, uh, and they were brought in. The contact of the physicians to find any specific orders whenever possible. And then as the units came back up, uh, in the community, then they were referred back there. But for the first three, four days, most of the patients got dialyzed in the hospitals themselves. Okay. How did, did you... Yeah, thanks. A question uh, for you, perhaps, Mark Salazzo. How did you... Question from, uh, I believe it's this is Mike or Mickey Brown. How did you handle the loss of computer data access? Did you lose any? Electronic medical records, etc. This was on my mind actually a little bit when I was looking at the web portal for employees and wondering if that was your main way of communicating if, in fact, uh, everyone uh, might have, many people might have been experiencing uh, interruptions in the Internet. But let's start with uh, uh, medical records. So uh, the systems did go down for a little bit, for a little while. It was about uh, 12, 18 hours uh, we lost uh, connectivity. Um, we, we have standard uh, procedures, standard manual procedures that the staff immediately go to. Um, so, you know, it's not so long ago that we didn't have an electronic medical record and some of our facilities were still um, still actually converting to electronic medical records. So all the staff know how to use standard manual procedures. The issue with that, obviously, is then uploading the data that, uh, that you chart manually during the outage, and that is always a manpower issue. And so what we do for that is we make certain that when we do have these outages, we bring extra personnel in that can upload the information into the chart post uh, the outage. Um, with regard to communication, I'll ask Mark to comment on that in the EMR in a moment if he has anything else to add. With regard to communication with staff, um, the issue here, communication is always an issue in disasters. Yeah. Right. 
And with each disaster, we look to make um, our communication channels more redundant and, um, and more varied. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to use different social media. We're trying to use internal health board. We were tweeting. Um, we had um, uh, we uh, had our Facebook account up for anyone who could, who could access it. Now, remember again that there were widespread power outages. Right. So um, we were also posting information in the hospitals for uh, to communicate and, and distribute uh, by paper. Um, and uh, this is another area that we, in the after action report uh, that we do after every single one, uh, we, we try to uh, try to think about other methods of communication um, and other ways of, of uh, communicating. We were talking about trying to identify hotspots in the community uh, in the communities that actually had power to utilize those in the future as well. So we're always looking for additional ways to communicate. Okay. Somebody is asking whether you have standard forms that you use during disaster that assist in identifying supplies available and staff available. Do you have kind of templates, uh, things that can be, you know, easily uh, transfer, uh, transferred among staff uh, and, and seen by staff? So I'll start, and then uh, the other two gentlemen can can jump in. It starts first with uh, standardizing the roles within the incident command structure, and we actually script uh, the roles uh, for people who have not are, have been accustomed uh, to playing the particular role that they have to play in, in the command center. is actually a script, and so um, we start there. And then as we go into each of the areas, whether it's uh, utilities, communication, resource management, security, safety, EOC operations, patient care, there are standardized protocols that we have developed over the years, disaster after disaster, that we continue to try to improve and utilize um, and make certain that we uh, make better with each uh, each learning experience. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, I just want to bring out one other point on the EHR issue, uh, and it gets to what Mr. Cabral had mentioned before about staffing. Uh, not only at Staten Island, we had not only the electronic system, but also the lab system in terms of being able to access lab tests unless you go down to the lab. There's no way for people to see them on the computers on the floor. Same with uh, radiology. So it's very critical you have a lot of staff there so you can use them as runners. And they can print out things in the lab and bring the results right up to the floors. Uh, so you have to use a lot of manual things and old-fashioned system, namely feet, to get the information upstairs. Uh, it's a very critical thing. Similarly on staffing with physicians, uh, you need to overstaff on physicians because this is a long event. And people either may not be able to get back into the hospital who are off that day. Uh, so people need to have their rest because what happens otherwise is they get overtired and then they can't really perform. And it's not fair to them and it's obviously not fair to the patients. Uh, so having staffing for the clinical staff as well as uh, what normally people would think about high staffing is very essential for an event like this. Okay. Very, very good. All right. Um, I'm going to let people... Oh. <laughs> Here's somebody. We're really getting down to it. How is was billing and expense recovery being handled and planned for in advance? <laughs> I don't. Uh, that, well, you know what? That's <laughs> yeah. a good question. Okay. And we we learned we learned through one or two of the disasters because after after uh, I think it was the blackout 
back in uh, 2003-ish, I can't remember exactly the year, um, that after the blackout, we're looking around saying, boy, we really incurred a lot of expense, and has anybody been taking uh, stock of this? And we realized, well, you've got to have a running total of this to be able to either uh, use uh, your insurance or to make claims. And so there's actually a, uh, a post inside the command center for finance, and their job is to uh, keep track of unusual expenditures or lost revenues. So that way, um, you have insurance or FEMA claims after the fact. Okay, thank you. Somebody is asking me to us to address Michelle Conlin's question, but I'm not seeing it at least on my scroll. So if anybody, if Michelle wants to uh, uh, repost that, that would be great to the chat. Uh, I have a quick question, uh, and then I think we should probably get into some of your uh, ways that you're kind of, uh, after the fact, uh, trying to continue to evaluate uh, what you learn and what uh, might be improved going forward. And that is uh, whether this is the very first time that North Shore Long Island Jewish engaged as heavily and as intensely with the community. Um, of course, you're in the community, you're in many, many communities, but I'm just curious if there was some special learning that went on uh, about sort of uh, the system's role in the community, um, particularly given your reach and size and perhaps some of your resources. I don't know if who might want to speak to that. So I'll start again. Um, I think um, it, one of the earliest um, experiences where we really uh, understood that the community interaction was absolutely essential was H1N1. Um, when we were hit with that pandemic back in um, 2009, the center of the pandemic started actually two miles away from Long Island Jewish Medical Center at St. Francis High School. And so um, we quickly realized the, the need to be able to communicate effectively not only with our staff, but with uh, physicians, the voluntary physicians uh, that uh, may have just incidental contact with us because they were sending patients to our ED that maybe didn't need to go there. We needed uh, forms to be able to communicate with them effectively, but also with the community to allay the fears of the worried well um, because uh, they could quickly um, uh, surpass our ability to respond to the, with the resources that we have. So that was one of our early, uh, really early um, events that we understood the need to be very, very proactive. And in, and from that, we also staff a um, communications and, um, and uh, public relations uh, post in the command center to proactively provide information, not only to our staff, but to the clin clinicians in our community, as well as the community in general. Okay. And it's important not to send mixed messages, so we try to coordinate that with the municipalities. Um, we are a system that spans many uh, municipalities and, and local governments, and so sometimes that's a challenge, but we try to make certain that we coordinate uh, with them and with the messages that they're trying to send as well. Well, thank and you. I think the very Go ahead, yeah. The other, the other very important piece to that is when the local um, government agencies and or counties uh, can't necessarily agree on the right course of action, we tend to serve as sort of the central repository of information that we then can feed that information back so that we get sort of the, the, the local sort of whether it's the, uh, the local government uh, all on the same page so that uh, 
they're all communicating the same message, and we have a particular sphere of influence when it comes to that. All right, thanks. I want to ask my guests, and I don't want to put anyone on the spot. I see a lot of people just kind of got warmed up here with their questions, and uh, if you have the time or if anyone has the time, we can go over by about five minutes, but uh, otherwise we can always, if we don't get to every single question here today, I promise we'll try and address them after the fact. Does anybody in the room there have an extra five after 3 p.m., or everybody got a dash. <laughs> no, we're here for you. Okay, thank you very much. I think people are sort of just, uh, oh, this could sound like a terrible pun, feet wet. So I, I, I think people were kind of getting warmed up here. So we've got a question about medical devices, uh, sort of keeping things, any special learning about that. Uh, and somebody from Huntington, New York, uh, and works with the system, very impressed with everything, wondering, uh, are there any things you might call out like, ah, we did not anticipate this. I think some of that might have been in your narrative, but uh, will be kind of thought about going forward. So let's uh, try and get to equipment first and then uh, sort of any kind of major things that you might not uh, have really ha had on your screen before. Well, in terms of the medical devices and equipment, I think, uh, again, because the emergency command center was set up a week before, uh, we try we come up with a list and anticipating what we may need in terms of supplies, uh, both disposable supplies as well as making sure we have everything we need. Uh, clearly, in a storm, we recognize the fact that trucks will not be able to get to us, so we pre-position supplies, uh, stockpile supplies, uh, so that that way that's all available for each of the hospitals. Uh, in terms of things that we kind of didn't think about, I think we thought about it, but one of the things that we need to really, as a lessons learned, is really deal again, a lot of the care occurs outside of hospitals, uh, and we have to be very aware, although we did appreciate it and pay attention to it, but to homebound patients, patients who are in hospice, things, uh, those types of patients, uh, and really maybe bringing those patients into, into shelters and areas earlier. Uh, clearly, a lot of patients don't like to leave their homes, uh, and that was an issue on Staten Island, and unfortunately a dangerous issue, and some people lost their lives because of it. Right. Uh, but we have to work to, to look at that, especially for our frailest patients that are homebound. Okay. I think just to, to follow up on that as well, Madge, mm -hmm. there wasn't any, like, aha moments. It was more that uh, our approach to these, and like you've seen, we've been through a number of them, is that we know we can learn uh, from each event. And so that's why we take it very seriously. We do uh, a, uh, a review, a hot wash, we call it, within a couple of weeks of the event to make certain that the lessons are really fresh and we look at everything that we do and we're always looking to try to improve it. Okay. So I want to, I realize some people have to go. Thanks everybody for hanging in there. Um, your after action and continuous learning and some of the notes that you shared with me um, talked a little bit about employee resource assistance, quality review, this notion of a hot wash with the leadership team. Uh, is there anything that you would especially like to call out in terms of the after action and continuous learning uh, to sort of help us wrap up and that will kind of bring us in some sense to the present and what you're continuing to think about? I'm sort of a little bit biased, but I think for, you have to really focus on your uh, your workforce so that you can take care of your patients. So taking care of your staff or starting with your staff is key to making sure that you have good patient care ultimately, meaning that you have enough workforce to be able to deal with these uh, these emergencies. Okay. Others? And 
I would add that as much as we have redundant communication, you never have enough communication, and you have to look for other imaginative ways to do it. Uh, nobody expected that the old landlines that were copper lines would not be working, because it turns out that they're fed by fiber optics as the main trunk, so when electricity went out, the copper lines into our houses, which we all thought were sacrosanct in the old days, are no longer sacrosanct. So you have to think about communication broadly, and it is difficult since we become such an electronic uh, you know, methodology of, of, of getting to staff, patients, everybody, and when all that gets knocked out, you have to figure out other ways, and that's what we're working to look at as well. And I will just add uh, a global perspective, Madge, and that is um, that the process with regard to preparation is an ongoing one. And when we learn lessons, even after the hot wash, we learned a number of lessons, and we said, okay, we're going to implement these things. Um, one of the things that uh, an organization must do is have the diligence to continue to follow up on those items over and over again. We recently met just uh, a few days ago and saying, what's the status? Mm. Uh, we don't want, we want to make certain that we, the learnings that we, uh, we, we, we found, we put in place, we've tested, our staff feel comfortable, and it's a continuous process. That's really fantastic. And, you know, it sort of ties in uh, somebody, uh, uh, Carlos has asked a question, any lessons for Haiti, and uh, can we transfer anything? And I would imagine uh, you and I'm sure other systems around the country who have gone through some major events have a lot to teach. Uh, so we'll kind of continue to look uh, to you and learning and perhaps any other ways that you might be sharing uh, your story and your experience, either in uh, any publications, uh, future uh, teaching means. I'm happy to have you all back <laughs> on, on, on WIHI and um, see you know what else uh, we can delve into here, but it's all quite relevant. And I want to thank you all um, for your time today, Dr. Jarrett, Joe Cabral, and Mark Salazzo. Um, we really got three very, very interesting perspectives and dimensions, and I really did ask you guys to do the impossible of uh, taking so many uh, things that had happened and trying to kind of boil it down for us on WIHI. So thank you uh, for your time. And uh, just a reminder to everyone that you can check out our Facebook page after today's show, and uh, you'll see some further discussion of this. Don't forget about tweeting, and we do hope you'll fill out a survey uh, at the end of the program today. And don't forget, you can download all the materials we shared today, or you can access them from um, info at IHI.org. Uh, we also make the chat available as well. Next up on WIHI, May 30th, uh, we're turning to kind of a chronic health issue on blood pressure. We're going to take a look at the Measure Up, Pressure Down campaign of the American Board of Internal Medicine, 80% uh, reduction by 2016. So we'll find out how that's going. Uh, don't forget, by tomorrow morning, you can check out the WIHI webpages for uh, the audio of today's programs and all sorts of related resources. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible, they are many. So let me tell you about some of them. Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. And we have a wonderful Northeastern co-op, Nicole Wells. We have some fun music that opens and closes the show. And again, my thank you to North Shore Long Island Jewish for sharing this story about events that took place at the end of October in 2012. 
uh, events that uh, keep on giving in terms of the learning uh, as we face new sorts of challenges of all sorts. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thank you.